Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello, welcome to this week's episode of Political State from the Oklahoma. I'm Ben Felder here in the Oklahoman's Video Studio, downtown Oklahoma City. Joining me this week, my colleague Justin Wingeter from the federal government beat, and our guest this week is former state senator A.J. Griffin. I'm not sure if, uh, well, first off, welcome. Thanks Thank for joining you. us this week. Glad and I'm not sure here. if uh, last week's elections had to be somewhat of a relief, right? Uh, you're not on the ballot. You're not having to worry about that. Were you able to just kind of sit back and, and, and relax and just kind of enjoy the show for a change? It, I did. Tuesday night was a lot of fun. I did a couple of uh, media appearances and just kind of watched as, as a bystander instead of participant for the very first time. Although I participated in a few of the races and had a vested interest in who replaced me to mm-hmm. serve my district and was very pleased at that outcome. We'll be represent- the 20th district will be represented by uh, Senator Chuck Hall, yeah. who, a friend of mine who was a part partner in service while I was in. He was the mayor of one of, of Perry, one of the mm-hmm. communities in my district. So I'm thrilled that he will be representing uh, my constituents at the Capitol. Yeah, so still p- keeping a close eye on things. But uh, so now you find yourself as the director of government affairs for PACOM. Uh, you know, you left, um, you didn't reach term limits, um, but you'd been in that seat since 2012. Um, we don't have to get into this too much, but I mean, what was, you know, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons and, and you're making, you know, personal decisions for you and your family as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, why, why did you decide not to, not to remain in office? Well, it was a difficult decision because I enjoyed my time in public service and experienced an awful lot of success getting things done, especially on the projects that I worked on the most, mental health, our child welfare system, juvenile justice issues. Uh, but of course, I think of public service as kind of a season. I really do believe that that our our system is best served by people who go and serve, and then rejoin the populace. Uh, there's people use the phrase, you know, I'm just a regular person. Well, I'm just a regular person who happened to serve in the Oklahoma Senate for a short time, never intended it to be a career. Although I very much love policy work and, yeah. and continue to to want to stay involved in the arena, but. You know, only a few thousand Oklahomans have had the pleasure, as we celebrate our state's 111th birthday today, mm-hmm. and only a few thousand Oklahomans have had the honor and the pleasure of, of serving as a legislator, and I took that very seriously. But I was really bright time for me to rejoin the public sector, yeah. the private sector. And one reason say. I want to ask you about that is because, you know, we saw several of your colleagues in the Senate and even the House that bowed out a little early. I mean, this was a year of change, and we'll get into that a little bit more. Some reached term limits, some incumbents lost, mm-hmm. but some decided not to seek re-election. And, and once again, there's a lot of different factors at play there. But this was this had been quite a stormy last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I'm not going to ask you necessarily if that influenced your decision, but how much... What were the last couple of sessions like with special sessions sprinkled in there compared to when you first entered uh, the Senate? I mean, how would, and, and do you feel like we're kind of beyond that now going to the next session? How would you kind of assess the last couple of years? Well, for my former colleagues and my new colleagues in the Senate and members of the House, I certainly hope we're beyond it. I hope they have an opportunity to spend more time working on things that that are important to them as legislators and important to their constituents instead of just putting out the fires. Mm -hmm. And the last couple of years, we were really just kind of playing defense on the budget. It wasn't any one particular decision. I don't think you can go back to 
a single point in time or even a single cause that created the firestorm that in particular the last 18 months were. I think it was a series of decisions and then of course the fact that as a state we have not yet addressed the long-term needs of stabilizing our budget and created mm -hmm. a vision fund and created ways to anticipate the boom and the bust that we know is going to happen as an energy state and plan for it so it isn't a crisis every time it occurs. I hope that we've learned and that we'll do better but you know what they say about the, the oil patch is yeah. I promise if you'll just give me another boom I promise I won't squander this one. Yeah. Well, um, but I hope it. I've hoped they turn the corner. It was an extremely stressful time, and there's there isn't a single person that was at the Capitol in any capacity, including the press that was covering the Capitol and the, the lobbyist corps and our staff. Um, we forget about the stress of the staff mm -hmm. that were serving um, the legislature in their their full time job. That the things that we went through over the last 18 months. So um, everyone kind of deserves to to turn the page and to to start anew. You know, in a normal year before term limits, someone leaving after six, eight, ten yeah. years was not a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's only been since term limits that we have this forced turnover that the natural turnover among legislators has become a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so that's something as a state we need to, to just remember that this is a self-inflicted situation because there was always going to be a small portion of the legislature that turned over. People that didn't, for one reason or another, didn't consider it something they wanted to do for decades. They just wanted to do it for a while and to be in service to the state. Yeah. You talk about getting over that hump and being able to focus on important issues. You're not saying education spending and the budget were not important issues. You're saying that hopefully you can stop legislators can start running uphill and can actually stand still for a minute, look out what are the things we would like to address rather than, as you put it, putting out fires. Well, and, and there was a lot of important work that's happened over the last couple of years. Um, you know, I, I got a lot of things done. They were, you know, things that were not controversial, that didn't cause a lot of uh, attention mm -hmm. to, the, to be drawn to them. But, of course, the focus was how are you going to fill this hole in, this, in the budget constantly. That's what, I don't know how many hours of my life were spent in caucus meetings mm. talking about that very thing whenever we weren't talking about many of the other things, although there was still important work being done. The, the other thing that I hope... That, this new crop of legislator has as um, they look forward is a little bit of restored trust from the electorate. And that's probably the hardest thing as an elected field official to deal with is serving people that you know don't necessarily trust you and in a day and age of social media make it very aware that they don't trust you and they don't, tr they don't trust you or the process or the, the people that you're working with. And I hope they no. can turn the page. Well, so, I mean, so many new faces in the legislature. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, six years almost makes you a career politician now, uh -huh. it seems like. Um, you know, but, but there is, you know, this new wave uh, of new lawmakers coming in, almost half of the House and, and a good chunk of the Senate. Um, you know, we didn't see a shift in the balance of power. Um, you know, Republicans still have an overwhelming majority, a supermajority even now in the House. Um, but there did seem to be this kind of shift towards moderation a little bit. Um, we saw a lot of that in the summer in the primaries um, with maybe some of the incumbents got beat. And I want to ask you about that because I think it's probably fair to characterize you as a moderate. Um, I mean, you can object to that if you'd like. But, I mean, what is, first off, do you feel like that is, that is an accurate description that the, the legislature has seemed to kind of made a shift towards moderation? And then, then second, what does that mean, do you think, moving forward, especially into the 2019 session? Well, if I noticed anything about the, new, the newly elected officials and those that are coming back is that many of them are just good old-fashioned 
practical problem solvers that um, haven't necessarily campaigned on, you know, I'm going to go do this for you. They've campaigned mm -hmm. on, I'm going to be there to solve problems. I don't want those to be real problems. Now, you and I both know that there's still going to be a lot of really interesting pieces of legislation filed over the next couple of months because some people just can't help it. Uh, but the bulk of the the bulk of the legislatures are going to be made up of problem solvers, and we can categorize them as you know moderate Republicans, moderate. If they're a problem solver, I. Truthfully, I don't care if they are an R or D. Mm -hmm. Get there, solve problems, listen to your constituents, and represent your district. The people that were forced out of office at the ballot box on both sides, both they all had something in common, and that's many of them were representing their own interests at the Capitol as opposed to the interest of their constituents. And if you look at the commonality among both sides mm -hmm. and what they were working on, what they were saying in the public space, I think that was really the thing that everybody who got voted out had in common, um, that they weren't necessarily the voice of their district, but they were their own voice. Yeah. Are there people at the legislature, legislators who are very bolsterous, who give in the public space, as you put it, give these rousing speeches or point fingers, and then you meet them behind uh, closed doors and they're just average people, and they're like, hey, let's hang out, let's, let's get together. And you're wondering, what, didn't you just give this nasty speech or something? Yes. <laughs> That's the best answer to that question. Yes, there are people that have a very interesting persona, public persona, for one reason or another, usually for political reasons. Right. Uh, or, or they're the person that's been selected by their particular subset, and are like, we need you to be this. Oh. But if you meet them... I, they're just they're just a, a normal person um, you know it is ironic that we elect people that kind of act a little bit like Oklahomans and if you're if you're not very happy with what we have at the Capitol, we should all probably do a little self-reflection as well. <laughs> what do we see? You know, it's not because it's it is very much a reflection of Oklahoma. Whenever you get to know our membership, vast majority are hardworking folks with that are solid and and have a have a good sense of who they are and what they want to accomplish. And then we have some showmen. You know, so I said showmen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there. Didn't say show women. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something I am yeah. thrilled to see the number of women. Um, you know, we didn't jump by leaps and bounds, but we made an improvement there. And some of the, the, the women that are joining the legislature for the first time are going to be unbelievably talented lawmakers. I'm particular, got to meet Brenda Stanley, um, Senator Stan Brenda Stanley now from Midwest City mm -hmm. the other day, and I think she's just going to be a rock star. Yeah. There is this kind, you know. There's, you know, as there always is, or usually is after an election. I mean, there's kind of the spirit of renewal, and um, you know, so many new lawmakers. And after the last couple of years of this this budget infighting, and you're right, it it, came, it kind of came to a crest last year for everyone, media included. It kind of felt like you know the day after Thanksgiving at your house. It's been full of people, and you're just like, I'm ready for this. Just to, everyone, to go away <laughs> please go away, and to be over. Not that people need to feel sorry for us, but. Um, so there is this kind of kumbaya atmosphere right now, this, the ceremonies this week, and people saying, we want to work across the aisle and get things done. Um, and part of that is helped by the fact that the economy is improving, and that, you know, there's this talk of you know, a billion extra dollars. Now, not all of that is going to be um, available for the legislature, and when you look at everything that everyone is saying they want to spend that money on, it goes away pretty quick. So, I mean, how, 
how quickly do you think we'll get to kind of, you know, what has been traditionally just, you know, the, the, the common environment of the legislature? Or do you feel like it may be a different year this year? Because the politics can turn on really quick. And, you know, the kind of the happy feelings of, of a swearing-in ceremony have a way of vanishing pretty quick at the Capitol. Well, I know that the two leaders in the two chambers are going to have a challenge ahead of them. With that many new members in particular, Speaker McCall is going to have to rely on his uh, elected uh, representatives that are helping serve in both of the caucuses and then and in leadership. You know, I think two key positions that people don't talk about a, a lot are the minority leader positions because that the who's serving as minority leader can set the tone mm -hmm. for what happens in a chamber as much as who's serving in the majority um, and I know with Senator Kay Floyd in the Senate she's a, she's a talented and intellectual I mean I always say that Kay Floyd's the smartest person in the room and I don't care what room she's in and Kay will will approach things in the Senate like a very very much a Senate way. It'll be mm -hmm. it'll be thoughtful and systematic and data driven and 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 well rounded in the House to have um, for the first time uh, the minority caucus being led by by a woman and, and a young woman with Representative Emily Virgin serving as the the minority leader in the House. It will be fun to watch her grow into that position mm -hmm. um, as a first time leader in that type of a role of that pro high profile and to see how she and Speaker McCall set the tone for their relationship will be very important. I mean, I don't think anybody who was watching doesn't think that the relationship between Speaker McCall and Minority Leader Inman mm -hmm. yeah. played a big role <laughs> yeah. in much yeah. of the dysfunction of the special sessions in particular. Yeah. Well, you talk about the, the impact that the minority can have. And in, the, in you know, recent years, in a lot of ways, the Democrats have been you know, the, the nation's most powerful minority because a lot of the focus was on raising revenue. You have that three-fourths requirement. So Democrats had to play ball. Uh, in the House, at least, uh, Republicans have that supermajority exactly with 76. Now, I'm not sure the revenue raising measures is going to be much of a factor this year. There doesn't seem to be that appetite. So what is the role, do you feel like, of, of the Democrats? I know, you know, speaking as a Republican, but uh, what is the role of the Democrats going into this year? What opportunities, if any, can they play if this is still a Republican-dominated legislature? Well, and I'm glad to hear you say that, that you know, the minority was part of an had to be part of getting to mm -hmm. uh, the three-quarter threshold to raise revenue. And I do agree that I don't know that revenue raisers are going to be a big topic of conversation this year. I think other things will, some additional accountability. I know that Senator Roger Thompson, who's going to be the chair of the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, um, he and myself and several others actually filed a piece of legislation last session in hopes of going back to line item budgeting. So I think you're going to see the line item budget become very important and that's where the minority can have a big impact because they're going to be serving on those subcommittees if in the Senate at least the subcommittee structure on the budget will be important. Yeah. We'll have to see the House comes along with that type of, of development but individual members still have a significant voice if they'll use it. It does require bipartisanship for, for a Democrat and, and it requires the, the majority party to also be willing to, to listen. Um, if, I were a, if I were a 
Democrat in the House, I would file some legislation and go find me a Republican senator to carry it on the other side yeah. and, and try to ensure that we do truly have bipartisanship. You know, the dysfunction over the last couple of years, people will say, well, it's because we're so partisan. But if you look at the votes, it really wasn't a partisan issue. And if it was, you'd have to break the parties up into four instead of just mm -hmm. two, mm -hmm. uh, because both sides were responsible for the difficulty in getting to a compromise on the needed revenue that we did need to increase um, in order to stay to fill this budget gap. I'm not going to say stabilize because we didn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, we filled part of a budget gap mm -hmm. and then thankfully uh, the economy's improved and we're going to fill the rest of it. There's no such thing as extra money in the mm -hmm. state of Oklahoma yeah. <laughs> that doesn't exist because every single dime's already spoken for with one uh, important core function of government need already. Yeah. It, we'll see that investment go to the things that it should, education, mental health, health care, yeah. corrections. Also next year we have a new governor, governor-elect mm -hmm. Kevin Stitt, who has kind of come in with this uh, feeling like this mandate of change and wanting to bring increased accountability. Now I want to ask you about, you know, yesterday we saw the first bill mm -hmm. in the Senate filed um, uh, by Senator Treat um, to create this uh, uh, accountability office, kind of a similar to like the CBO in a way. So it looks like we're going to see the legislature make a push to, uh, you know, maybe add this office that takes a deeper look at, uh, at budget and, and policy, transparency. You know, the governor-elect wants more power over, you know, appointing agency heads. There's a lot of talk about government reform. And on the surface, it sounds like maybe this wouldn't be that controversial, per se. You know, I mean, it's not your typical partisan issue. But what are what do we need to be watching for in the early weeks of the session as this government reform effort comes up? What are, we, what are going to be some concerns for some Republicans? And do you feel like Democrats are going to go along with the majority on this effort? I think it'll... It will look different in the House than it does in the Senate. I think in the Senate we'll probably see a little more consensus around some of these things than we will in the House. You know, of course, creating a new state agency mm -hmm. when we've been working really hard to shrink this yeah. shrink the quote-unquote size of government over the last several years is an interesting approach. I think the need for this is a result of the budget cuts that have happened to the legislature itself because you would now no longer have um, the numbers we used to have in support to do many of the things this new agency is going to do. Now there's some value in having it independent so that neither chamber controls it and the, these are these are people that don't necessarily work for either the chamber so that it truly is an independent evaluation of, of budget and performance and things. So that will be part of that controversy is why are we growing government when we've spent so much time trying to shrink it? Is this really the best way to spend this money? Are these things private groups can do and do for us and we can pay someone else to do it instead of creating another state agency? And I think all of those will be questions that come out about that particular piece of legislation. And I do think that out of the Senate you're going to see a focus on the budgeting process and try to improve it and improve the transparency to protect from things that have that we have plagued us like the the crisis that wasn't a crisis at the health department mm -hmm. and which could have been solved by a line item budget process and coupled with there will be fights uh, a lot of fights over the boards and commission concept of government versus you know a gubernatorial a stronghold mm -hmm. you know we just saw that although Oklahomans say, say we want to give the governor more power, we want the governor's position to be more important, and then we go to the ballot box and the people defeated a measure that would have combined the governor's mm -hmm. and the lieutenant, lieutenant yeah. governor's offices and had them yeah. work together. So you, sometimes the things that we say that we want and the behavior of the electorate are 
different. Yeah. And just one quick follow-up on that. I mean, do you feel like, because you talk about this idea that, uh, you know, on the surface this is, you know, expanding government and, you know, more power for the, for the governor. I can, you know, I can envision Republican House members or Republican senators, some saying, this is the opposite of what we want to do. But do you feel like, have we seen that when we talk about that shift towards moderation, do you feel like maybe some of those members who may be the, the biggest critics of it? Not to say that the, mm-hmm. that the middle will be just like, yeah, I'll sign it, just give it to me. But do you feel like maybe we're going to see less resistance this year than maybe in years past? Or? Yeah, although some of the names have changed, um, the, I still contend that those elected to office reflect the state. Mm-hmm. And so the names will be changed. And although we've some, many of those, those people that you know would have obje- objected to this as growing government are no longer with us, I have a feeling there'll be others that replace them because yeah. the, the legislature does reflect the people and there, there is a segment of our, our state that will interpret that as growing government. Yeah. Well, as we uh, enter the final minutes of t- this week's episode, uh, Justin, uh, I want to ask you about a story you have coming up on Sunday to change gears here a little bit. But as we're looking forward, we're also still looking back at the elections. Um, and one of the things that we saw and we've talked about before is, you know, this obviously this, this rural and urban shift, yeah. particularly in Oklahoma County. A lot of attention in Oklahoma County. I mean, the election of Kendra Horn, flipping that into a Democratic congressional seat. Drew Edmondson did well in Oklahoma County. It's not a shock that Democrats are doing well in Oklahoma City, but it's just they are solidifying Oklahoma County and Oklahoma City as, as their base. And, and you've got a story this Sunday that takes a closer look at that. Yeah, it was really, I mean, we've written a lot and talked a lot about the Horn-Russell upset. and. The race that was, that was, and all the reasons for it. Um, Steve Russell, uh, Congressman Russell, blamed demo, or demographics essentially, or cited demographics, as the reason for his loss. And he's at least partially right. I mean, the demographics of Oklahoma County are changing, and they're changing in the Democrats' favor. Um, looking at legislative races, you had six races that switch, or six seats that switch from Republican to Democrat this year. Four of those are in Oklahoma County. You had eight that went the other way, from Democrat to Republican. All eight of those are outside of the county. <clears throat> As you mentioned, Edmondson uh, won here, uh, and Horn obviously won here, and defeating Russell. So it, it is a, a shift. It's not an unexpected shift. I was talking. To, um, it's a noteworthy shift, nonetheless. It's not shocking. I mean, I was talking to Mayor Holt about this, and he was telling me, if you go up to somebody and you say, I represent an area of a metro area of 1.3 million people. It's an area where millennials are coming in at high rates, uh, where people of color are coming in at high rates. That person's going to tell you that they're represented by a Democrat in Congress, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, that has not been the case for quite some time here. So this is really, in my opinion, sort of coming to what the rest of the country already is, that urban areas are represented by Democrats in Congress, certainly in you know state or city government as well. And we're seeing, uh, I think we're seeing in some of the legislative races here too. Yeah. Um, it's some really remarkable uh, victories. You had, I want to get the House District numbers right. So House District 83, this Northwest Oklahoma City, the village, a little bit of um, Nichols Hills as well. Chelsea Branham wins there. A Republican or, or a Democrat has never represented that seat. It goes back to 65. It's always been a Republican. I mean, every single time. Um, and, and Republicans won every race there by at least 18 percentage points over the last 24 years. Yeah. Never less than 18 percentage points. And Chelsea Branham comes in and wins there. Uh, you have House District 95. This is more like Midwest City, uh, the area mm-hmm. directly around Tinker, even. Yeah. Um, 
Republicans had controlled that district since 92. Uh, Democrat Kelly Albright wins there uh, this year. And so you have some really remarkable, obviously we talk about Senate District 30 and 40, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I talked to the mayor about that. He was not surprised by Kurt's victory there, but it's nonetheless a, a pretty significant shift. The mayor was telling me um, three years ago, his neighborhood in Northwest Oklahoma City was represented by a male Republican in the State House, State Senate, and Congress. He was one of them. Yeah, so yeah. obviously yeah. he was the state senator there. Um, next year will be a Democratic woman in all three seats. Uh, that's just a three-year shift there. And yeah. it's kind of anecdotal, obviously, but it's nonetheless. I mean, it's three different seats uh, flipping from, and he, he's real big on the gender thing. I would just for this conversation, Mark, the Democratic shift there. Yeah. So. so you talk about, you know, Democrats controlling, you know, most levels of government now in Oklahoma City and Oklahoma County. Um, not at mayor, but AJ, I want to ask you, that's a mm-hmm. former colleague of yours, mm-hmm. uh, Senator David Holt. Does Oklahoma City have a Democratic mayor now? I mean, <laughs> we, we talk about this moderate, you know, push uh, and seeing some moderates leave office this year, yourself and, and Holt was, was a moderate as well. I'm just kind of curious on your thoughts as you're, uh, you know, watching uh, your former colleague from the outside in, um, you know, now mayor of the state's largest city. I'm very proud of my friend um, and I think Mayor Holt's doing a great job and when he was running for mayor, I told him, I said, that looks like a really fun race to run. So to run a bipartisan campaign mm-hmm. that um, that you can full on the people that you trust and admire from both sides yeah. had to have been a great experience. So I was always jealous. I said that maybe one of these days I'll get to run yeah. in a nonpartisan campaign. But I, the, it's concerning to me, and it's probably kind of an indication of the real problem that when we have a, a switch from Demo, from Republican to Democrat, we talk about this and the, the, the manner of demographics and shifting demographics instead of, you know, what is it about the Republican message that isn't resonating with mm-hmm. these populations that are growing in this area. So I think Mayor Holt in particular has done a good job of bridging that divide and he recognizes within the city that the lack of diversity in city government is a problem. Mm-hmm. And if you look at our state and the, our lack of di- diversity has become a problem, we will benefit on both sides of the aisle from an improvement of diversity of experience. When I say diversity, I just don't mean in color, but um, gender is important, um, background is important, income is important, ethnicity is important, because we, we need a state government that is reflective of all of Oklahoma. I was thrilled that we saw such a high turnout in this election mm-hmm. to have over 50% of the electorate participate, although we shouldn't be thrilled with 50, over 50%. You know, We should yeah. be fr- thrilled because it was 97.2 or something like that. <laughs> um, another area that Mayor Holt worked a lot was to improve our election process, which, by the way, as Oklahomans, um, we should brag about the process of our elections. It's after the election, and we get to talk about the results. Yeah. <laughs> and none yeah. of the results are in question. And um, as far as I have heard, we did not have any major issues at polling places. You know, we had the big problems, like someone was 10 minutes late opening mm-hmm. it up. Yeah. If that's our problem, we're doing very well. Because we could be in Florida and not have any idea who won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. California, <laughs> yeah, several other states. Arizona, they're still going. Well, when I think about this shift in demographic, or the, in the, the shift in rep- representation mm-hmm. here in Oklahoma City, you know, I, to, it's, it's kind of a D.C. effect, right? Because you've mm-hmm. got... You know the bubble of DC, a very liberal city itself, and but right now, or at least for a little bit longer, you know Republicans control you know every branch. 
Um, and you know, Democrats are going to take control of the House here. But uh, there was a lot of talk in 2016 about you know the media is based in D.C. You know, didn't have their finger on the pulse of, of the country as a whole. A lot of government workers live in D.C. I, I think about the similarities to here mm-hmm. now because Oklahoma City is the base of power, and I think it's something you talk about in your story, Justin. But it's a Democratic city, and it's still a very Republican state. And what's the you know? Not that when Republican lawmakers come and stay in Oklahoma City for the session that somehow they change. That's not the case. But you, you know, as a senator, you were going back out to your areas mm-hmm. that are different than Oklahoma City. Um, what's the impact on that? Having you know the media center, the business center, the you know the lobbying center, everything like that is right now in this Democratic bubble. Um, while the rest of the state um, is very different, it won't have as much impact because you know although for four months of the year the legislators are here in Oklahoma City, you're still kind of living in, a, in an isolated environment, yeah. just with the capital crowd, so to mm-hmm. speak. You know, I had the best of both worlds. I, I represented this very diverse four-county rural area with, uh, you know, the largest town being Guthrie at ten, mm-hmm. about just over 10,000 people. But I also lived 25 miles from the capital, so I kind of had the suburban experience in, in my, my home life, so kind of had a little bit of everything. You know, rural Oklahoma uh, is still very conservative in nature, although not as conservative, I don't believe, as in behavior as our electorate has been behaving rec- uh, recently. Um, by that I mean the elected officials. Be- you know, we, we were cutting budgets uh, and then the peril hit rural Oklahoma in particularly mm-hmm. hard. If you look at the budget crisis where it's had the biggest impact, it's actually in rural Oklahoma mm-hmm. where we picked up seats. So, you know, sometimes the way we behave at the ballot box and what we say we want aren't always the same thing. So I do believe I'm back to saying I think we elected different people this time. Regardless of party, I do believe we elected more problem solvers and fewer ideologues and that it should make the entire process just work much better. Yeah, well definitely be interesting to follow. A lot of new faces and uh, maybe several months down the road we can bring you back in and kind of talk about uh, how well they're doing there. That sounds <laughs> like a kind plan. of judge from the outside. Yeah. Uh, used to getting a lot of I get to be yeah. the one playing exactly. armchair quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> well, AJ Griffin, thank you so much for your time. Okay. We appreciate thank you joining you. us this week. Uh, with Justin, I'm Ben. That does it for this week's episode of Political State. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for joining us.